You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. Hi, everyone. Just a note before we get started, I'm going to have the new website up for The Compass Podcast in the next couple weeks. Keep an eye out for it. You're going to be able to search all the episodes by different terms, such as dancer, composer, activist, parent, things you might be interested in that could uh, introduce you to an episode that maybe you wouldn't have listened to initially. I'm really excited about it. It's taken a long time, but I'm going to be glad to have it up and have a bit more of a web presence for the podcast. So thank you for your support and for checking it out. My guest today is Dylan Heap. Dylan is a wonderful actor and singer who I got to know when we did a reading together a couple years ago here in the city, but is actually a fellow University of Evansville grad after my time. Dylan is such a funny, thoughtful, and kind artist. They also happen to be sober like me, so I was eager to talk about some of that journey with them as well. Thank you, Dylan, for this candid conversation. It really made my week, and I hope you all enjoy the 140th episode of The Compass. What do you do to try to keep from going to the dark side as an artist? Oh, the dark side. Um, and what is that most often for you? I think I think the dark side can take different forms for me and my life. Um, I think in general what I do to try to avoid going there is uh, I just try to stay really busy. I try to be busy always. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm not working or if I'm not rehearsing for a project, I try to keep my calendar as full as possible. Um, you know, I'll I'll have coffee dates with friends. I love to go see friends shows. I meet with my book club. I see plays and movies. I try to be out and about, you know, out on the town and staying and feeling connected Mm -hmm. to people. I think I function best when I'm really busy and I will always, (laughs) I'll always feign, you know, exhaustion or exasperation, but (laughs) I think, I think really I'm, I'm happiest when I'm busy and sort of moving from one commitment to the next. Um, I think the dark place tries to sneak up on me in times when I'm when I'm not busy, when I don't have a lot to do, you know, my anxious mind will start to take over the the narrative in my mind. You know, voices will will come up saying, "You're, what are you doing? Why aren't you out doing something? Why aren't you busy? Why aren't you working on something? Why aren't you making something? Why aren't you on a date? Why aren't you out being social?" And it's I think it can be easy for me to let those voices take over. Um, you know, it's kind of amazing how easy it can be sometimes to to let that narrative take control. And so I just, in general, try to not make space for that. You know, if, if my life is full, if I'm feeling full, if I'm feeling busy, if I'm feeling grateful for the people around me and mm-hmm. the things that I'm, you know, the spaces I'm invited into, um, I can avoid... I think a lot of that. Um, and you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that I don't always successfully stay out of the dark 
place. Yeah, of course. You know, it's, it's like a sort of a constant effort. Um, I'll find myself in a period where bad habits are kicking in or maybe even self-destructive habits, either just, you know, circumstantially or maybe indicating a sort of pattern. And I think that that's usually, that's usually a sign that there's something going on, like a, maybe a, like a self-worth issue or something that's kind of been triggered or activated or like a body image thing or something. And that's usually a sign to me that I need to take a step back, maybe engage in some self-care, you know, do what I need to do to make sure that I'm focusing on taking care of myself and not succumbing to the, the narrative. Yeah. Um, but you know, it'll be a practice. It'll be a practice for the rest of my life. Have you been aware of going to the dark side, whatever that means to you for a long time in your adult life? Or do you feel like it's been something that, um, like kind of since graduating from school has kind of been more of a reality once you joined the profession of being an actor? That's an interesting question. Because you've don't... been an actor for a long time. I have. I've been an actor. But once you entered into like the, I'm just yeah. curious, like once you entered into the commerce part of it. Sure. I mean, I, I think in terms of my awareness of the dark side, it has come just in terms of the timeline of my life. It has come since my entry into the profession, the business, but I don't necessarily think it was my entrance into the business or, you know, the, the struggle to be a working actor in New York city that, um, made me aware of what the dark side was or what that meant to me. I think it, I think, I think I've been on a journey lately that has, you know, it's been a journey of self-discovery that's kind of come about, um, just in terms of my life as a whole, it's had a lot to do with my um, my mental health journey. It's had a lot to do with my journey uh, discovering and stepping into my queerness. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are all just things that, it, you know, started simmering up to the surface and making themselves known as I rounded the corner to 30, you know. Right. Um, people talk about this a lot, how, how difficult it is to make it as an artist, to make it as a, as an actor, as a performer of any kind, especially in a city like New York. And I agree that it is difficult, but I don't, I can't say that I blame the business or the commerce of it all for my own struggle. I mean, I think it's, I think it's been good for me that it's been so difficult up to this point. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you sort of feel like you've been put through the ringer in many ways, you know, and you survived and, and you, yeah, I survived and, and it's amazing to sort of, I mean, it's not like my, I'm not famous or anything. It's, I'm not rich. It's not like, you know, it's not like things happen overnight and I'm magically on some other side of some wall, you know, but I do feel like I've been on a journey specifically in the last couple of years that's opened my eyes to a lot of the things in life that are really important, um, what's important to me. And those learning those things about myself informs my trajectory as an artist. 
and that's just sort of a necessary journey, you know. Yeah, especially when there's such big fundamental parts of oh, yeah. yourself. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a little town called Ducoin, Illinois, okay. uh, which is a little farm town in rural southern Illinois. Uh, and I always say southern Illinois because if I just say Illinois, people assume Chicago, and I'm not. I'm from 300 miles south of Chicago, so right. it's like it's not anywhere near Chicago. It's kind of its own little armpit <laughs> of, of the Midwest. And so when you went to college at Evansville, you weren't going too far away. I wasn't. I wasn't far at all. I was only about two hours away from home. Oh, that's not bad mm-hmm. at all. And did you, how was your time there? Did you enjoy it? In Southern Illinois? In uh, Evansville. Evansville. I did enjoy my time in Evansville. Um, I mean, I can't say I enjoyed the town of Evansville or the state of yes. Indiana. <laughs> But my time on the University of Evansville campus was was time very well spent. I m- many of the people who are my dearest friends in this life in this world are people I met yeah. um, there. P- people I met in my first day at Evansville yeah, remain. Me too. You know what I mean? Or it some really my, is a unique place. It is in that way. It is. I had a really special time there. I learned a lot. I, you know just in terms of what we were just talking about sort of waking up to your own self-actualization i i was just a no nothing kid you know i mm-hmm. suppose we all are when we're 18 and we're going away to college but like i didn't i look back on that time like god i really didn't know anything <laughs> i didn't know anything um and there's a part of me i talk about this all the time with friends, there's a part of me that really wishes I could experience my undergraduate and my graduate uh, um, educations again, because I think I would approach the work in a much more curious, hungry, (laughs) active way. No, we can't. I feel the same way in some ways, but of course, you can only experience it from where you are at the time. And, And thankfully, you know, I had amazing teachers there who I learned, I mean, it's not even acting projects that I think of most frequently when I'm thinking about what I did at Evansville. It's, it's building costumes and, you know, stage managing and Mm. of course acting and and doing the shows that we did. Um, but yeah, I just, I'm so grateful for the, the well-rounded theater education I got there and also the, the broader liberal arts education. I'm, I remain convinced that that's one of the smartest decisions I ever made. Mm. And what does your family think about you choosing the path of an artist? I think they, I think my family masks a lot of their fear, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of their anxiety yeah. about it for my sake, which I'm grateful for. Do you have um, a large family, a small family? I do have a big family. I have a pretty big family. I mean, I'm one of only two kids, but I, um, uh, gosh, when I was born, all four of my grandparents were alive. And six of my eight great-grandparents were alive. Oh, wow. And all lived within a 10-mile radius of my home. I mean, I have a photo of myself on my third birthday surrounded by my 10 living grandparents. Oh, my goodness. I mean, to be able to say that now just feels extraordinary. At the time, it was just, you know, it was my life. It was my childhood. That's Um, amazing. But, you know, my, my family are all farm people. So a lot of, you know 
families were having kids at, at young ages and that's just sort right. of who my grandparents are, my aunts and uncles, my parents. Um, and so, yeah, my, my mom has a sister and my dad has two sisters. And so I had aunts and cousins around, you know, my age as well. And, and we all grew up in the same town. So I do have a big family. Um, they have always supported my being an actor. I mean, I was in plays, you know, there wasn't theater or art to speak of really in my town when I was growing up, but there was a community theater, um, half an hour, about 45 minutes away, just a little community college in the middle of a cornfield, literally. Mm. And a little company called the pyramid players did musicals and sometimes plays there every summer and always for kids. And so I grew up, you know, I was a solid decade of doing a musical every summer, which, you know, feels like an opportunity that I was certainly very, very lucky to have given demographically where I was. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it's, it's not like it was really, really high quality work, but it was, it was theater that was taken seriously by people who sort of came from all over Southern Illinois. You know, people were traveling sometimes upwards of an hour to get to rehearsals every day, depending on where they were coming from. Um, and in that way, it was just sort of this really special community of people, you know, putting on the music man and bye bye birdie and your good man charlie brown and <laughs> and you're learning what it is to work yeah. as a team as yeah. a community yeah and the people directing the shows and and doing all of that legwork they were all teachers you know they were all high school or middle middle school um drama teachers music teachers and it was just also a venue for you know teachers teaching in those mediums in public schools to come together and give kids a summer opportunity. And that also, that aspect of it feels really special. Were you in 4-H? No, I wasn't in 4-H. Okay. I don't, I don't know that we had 4-H. It's a big thing in Michigan where I grew really? up. Really? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard of it, but I, in high school, by the time I got to high school, then, you know, we were doing plays and stuff at high school. A lot of times my friends and I taking the, you know, taking charge and putting them on ourselves. Um, cause we didn't really have a, a drama department to speak of. I mean, it's just a small public high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did have organizations. I mean, I was a member of the future business leaders of America. Look at you. FBLA. <laughs> uh, and, and you are indeed running your own business now of your, uh, I am yourself as a I am. I suppose I a am a business leader of the future as, <laughs> as as fate would have it and then you went to grad school in san francisco at act i did yeah right after evansville right after evansville that must have been exciting i love san francisco san francisco is an incredible place living there changed my life for the better going to act changed my life for the better but again to bring it back to what we were talking about like i I didn't, I rolled up to grad school at age 22 and didn't, I had never had sex. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I didn't know. I had never really dated. I was like a doe eyed, virginal, know nothing kid, basically just off, you know, I had been to college and also studied abroad, but you know, 
aside from that one semester spent traveling Europe, which also just feels like a totally magical, like surreal dream chapter of my life. (laughs) Um, aside from that, I, you know, I went to college just relatively a few miles away from where I grew up in a, in a small city, like Evan, part of what makes Evansville so, or the university of Evansville so special is that it is such a small school. It's like one square block. Right. It's very, very intimate in that way. It's like an incubator. Mm -hmm. You don't feel there was, there's nothing about moving to Evansville, even for someone who came from a small town like me. I mean, there was nothing about moving to Evansville that felt like moving to a city. And it's not like a giant campus, like a big state school or something. No. Yeah. So yeah, the move to San Francisco was a big, a big move. And it was a move to arguably the queerest place in the country. Mm-hmm. I think certainly that meant more to me at the time than I even really registered. But the, my, my training at ACT just profoundly opened up my life in so many ways. I mean, you know, graduate acting school is, is in some ways the same no matter where you go. It's, it's, the work is about opening yourself up and exploring and examining and excavating your deepest emotional self. You know, what's, what's in there that, Mm -hmm. that you've never perhaps really, um, poked at before. (laughs) And there was a lot of poking (laughs) for me. And, um, and I had teachers who, held me with such care and such thoughtfulness and such Mm. love. And I look back now and I know, I just know that they, they were looking at me those three years. Like he, he doesn't know shit, (laughs) but he will one day. And we want to, we want to just love on him as much as we can. I mean, that, that is what my graduate experience feels like at this point in my life. Because in a lot of ways, I was still not on my journey to self-actualization yet in any sort of real active way. In fact, it was during grad school, it was toward the end of my first year at ACT that I started drinking really heavily and just sort of regularly. Mm -hmm. And without realizing it, I'd sort of fallen into a bad habit of drinking a lot of beer a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that ultimately became a habit and it was just sort of like a, I didn't, I didn't think much of it at the time, but it was sort of like a self-medicating habit I'd fallen into. Mm-hmm. And I look back and it was sort of, it seems very clear to me now that my drinking that started in grad school was a response to a lot of the emotional poking, you know, a lot of the mm-hmm the opening up of parts of myself that I had not encountered before. And I think I was experiencing a sort of, um, bewilderment and probably like quite a lot of pain that I didn't otherwise know how to handle and had never really had to have any sort of, um, mechanism to deal with before. And, yeah, I started, I started drinking and, and it just sort of became the way that I got through my day and the way that I got through my week and the way that I got through my semester yeah. and the way I got through the year. Um, and which 
can seem pretty normal when you're at that age, at least. Oh, yeah. Well, I know for me at the time, I, I've never really drank that much at Evansville. And then because we, we have this in common that we're both sober now. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe because I didn't really drink in college when I did start, it was kind of like, well, this is what mm-hmm. adults do. This is what it's like. This is what people this my is what age you do. do. Not only people our age, <laughs> but also people in our profession. In our I profession. mean, it's it's quite common for common. for it's artists. It's a bonding thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's And it's not just our profession. It's uh, the culture of alcohol specifically is such a raging, rampant culture mm-hmm. in our society. It's something that's so easily enabled. It's easily commercialized. It's 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 everywhere you know i still to this day i walk down streets and see sandwich boards outside restaurants and bars that say like soup of the day is bourbon and i'm like how is it actually possible that 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 you're allowed to say that and you know it's it's come into even clearer focus for me now that i have a baby because there's mm. this whole other wing of it that's like mommy juice mm-hmm. mommy needs her wine yeah. mommy to like deal with your kid yeah like, rosé all day weirdly <laughs> that's just weirdly predatory to yeah me. <laughs> i know it's crazy well and don't get me started on rainbow capitalism and all of the brands yeah. of vodka that were in rainbow about bottles that during pride this God, year it's just excessive and crazy yeah um so that started when you were in grad school mm-hmm. and then um You've been sober for several years now, right? I uh, just celebrated two and a half years. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Um, how has your, how did you find when you did become sober? How did you find it affected your acting or the way that you were approaching uh, the anxieties that can come with your career? You. That is a great question. That like transition from using one coping mechanism to mm-hmm. another. Well, I think for starters, I wasn't working on much artistically at the time that I got sober. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very much in a period, you know, this is just a couple years ago now, um, where I was just sort of surviving in New York City, working jobs that I hated, working jobs that just, you know, sucked my soul and my sense of self-worth right out of me daily and that's just sort of the space that I was existing in and that is that's when my drinking got the worst first of all um and so the impetus to get sober kind of came out of this period of like I'm not doing anything that that is rewarding to me I'm not living a joyful life. I'm living this sort of miserable life. I was, I was working in a restaurant. I was bartending and I, and that's just its own, like completely enabling environment. That's just awful. Um, and so I, yeah, I had gone, I mean, I had done plays. I had done plays here in the city and I'd worked on things when the drinking was still bad and, Um, and sort of the last project I worked on when I was still drinking was this play that I was so lucky to be a part of. It was a world premiere. It was, I had been part of every phase of this process since the first draft of the play was ever read. It was just randomly cast in this project. And then they, the playwright 
and the, the director kept asking me back for workshops. And then there was this production and it was a world premiere. And I was, um, I was playing this role that was essentially, you know, had been created. My performance of this role wound up in the world premiere right. production of this you play. Shape it. And I should have been on top of the world. One of my best friends was playing my sister in this production. It was this amazing ensemble of people. It was, it was so good. And I was showing up drunk mm-hmm. to work, you know, yeah. and just thought nothing of it because I had done that for years, but there was, I would, I would go and, and sit at a bar on the lower East side and like drink a pitcher of IPA before I would show up for my half hour call. And that was just like my reality. And that show happened and everything was fine because I was pretty high functioning, but it was after that project that I really had this sort of reckoning with myself and had this aha moment, like, you know, realized I was an alcoholic and was, it was almost like I had this sort of epiphany, like this sort of near the closest thing I've ever had to like a genuine religious experience, honestly, where I sort of saw, Mm. um, the circumstances of my life and the things that have happened to me and the, the, the things that I felt and the things that I've had to endure and the, the sort of pain that I'd squelched as a, as a queer person and sort of all of those things just sort of like lined up in my mind. If you can imagine like a, like a, like you see the planets coming into alignment or something. And I, I realized, Oh, I'm an alcoholic and I just flipped the switch Yeah. right then and there. And I haven't had alcohol since then, but it's, it's not like, it's not like things just changed overnight. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. After that, I was in therapy at that time. Um, I was also working this job that just made me want to murder everybody I encountered. Still at the restaurant? No, I, I quit the restaurant. I quit the restaurant because they were, um, it was not a queer friendly workspace. So I got out of there, but I had also at that time been working this administrative assistant job. Um, and it was just an equally kind of hostile work environment. And, but I kept that job cause it was paying well. And, um, I wound up like leaving New York city for a while after a bit. And I went and stayed with a friend in Connecticut and just like got out of the city. Um, all that to say, like it was, it took time. It's not like I got sober and then, you know, after a month of no drinking, I felt like, Oh, I'm better now. Right. Uh, it was like a year into my sobriety probably before I, a lot of this happened and I left town for a bit. Um, I, about a year or so into not drinking, I was feeling worse than I'd ever felt before. And like I, I was having headaches and I was, my vision was blurry and I was crying all day, every day. Mm. And I was like, I felt physically sick and I just was having difficulty like showing up and meeting my life. And it made no sense to me. Cause I was like, I quit right. drinking. I should I be, the thing. yeah. What <laughs> the hell is going on? What do you want me to do? Yeah. And I, I went to the doctor and my doctor was like, okay, well your, your depression's really bad. What are you doing about that right now? And I was like, sorry, my what? My, did you say depression? He was like, yeah, your depression. I was like, I'm not doing 
anything about that. I didn't know I had it. And he was like, okay, well, maybe we'll get you on a prescription to take care of that. And then what about your... Just, just from talking with you? Just, yeah. About how you were feeling physically? Mm-hmm. And about my physical symptoms, yeah. Wow. And then he was like, and then what are you doing about your anxiety? And I was like... Sorry uh, about that little dog, guys. Oh, we're just going to keep on going. We're just going to keep trucking. It sounds like a happy dog. <laughs> Yeah, I also, he, a doctor, and then I, I wound up seeing a psychiatrist also, and, and they were like, yeah, you have depression and anxiety, you're dealing with both of these things, and I had not been on any sort of regimen at all to take care of those things. And that was when I started to realize, oh, that's why I was drinking. That I was, was self-medicating. That was, I, I was self-medicating yeah. with alcohol all this time, you know, when these heavier sort of feelings started coming up when I was in grad school, which is natural, because that's what that training was about but those feelings started coming up and I without knowing it had started self-medicating these these two you know very distinct mental illnesses with alcohol and a year into sobriety was dealing with the physical realities of not having anything in my system to tamper that experience and so then it was a process of you know getting on some medications experimenting with with what medication at what dosage would help um, was just that, as was a, that a long process? That was a long process. The right mix. Yeah, it really was probably a, at least a year of of trying a couple of different things. And I ultimately, you know, and I talked about this with my doctors too, but I didn't, I don't want to be on medication, you know. Right. And I made that very clear. It can be daunting to be like, I'm yeah. going to be on this for how many yeah, years? Yeah, to feel like, like you rely on it. Yeah. Um, and so we experimented with a couple different things, and of course that involves like you know you you have to try something for a couple of months to see if it really works and so on something for a while that alleviated the depression but did nothing for the anxiety and so then we mm. added something but then it felt like oh I'm on these two drugs now and that's no good and I don't feel the depression so much anymore so what do we yeah it was about a year or so of that um, and I wound up after about a year of that kind of experimentation just on a very low dosage of one medication that that I'm still on and that um I think ultimately like in the next six months or so, I'll probably wean myself off of, but, um, yeah, that was, that was a, a, I mean, it, it saved my life truly. I mean, and kudos to your doctor. Yes. Jeez. Yes. I mean, some, you know, just very smart, compassionate people who I just wound up in the room with. Well, and you never know how, and I'm sure each doctor is different, but how holistic, Oh, their yeah. view is, or if no. they're just so focused yeah. on the physical stuff that they don't even think to, I mean, I'm sure it's a part of their training to look for that stuff, yeah. but well, it can you be know, easy to put blinders on. Easy to put blinders on and easy just as yourself, as a person to convince yourself that you're fine, that you don't need, I would never yeah. in a million years have thought I have depression, <laughs> you know, but, but it was amazing to me how empowered I felt once I understood that once I understood that, oh, this sort of slogging through life experience I've felt I've been having recently is not, I mean, it's actually what's happening. I am sort of slogging through this, um, this illness that is not my fault and that many, many, many people experience and have dealt with and have ways of dealing with. Um, it was empowering to understand that and to, and relieving to feel like, oh, I'm not dying. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I need to seek a little bit of help and care. You know, yeah. I did other things too. I got into this incredible, um, group 
cognitive behavioral therapy class. It was, they called it a psychosocial um, learning community through the Actors Fund. And oh, it was cool. just this, this um, group of 10 people in the in- entertainment industry who, all of whom suffered from either anxiety or depression or both. Um, we had to each be interviewed and evaluated and deemed clinically eligible. Um, and I got in and I just met and sat in a room for the first time with people like myself who were functioning, most of whom were functioning members of the entertainment industry who were also dealing with these sort of specters of mental illness. And that also was just so empowering, just the simple, the simple reality of sitting at a table with people in such a way that we could say like, we're all experiencing this. Let's talk about it. And then it's not an illusion, not an illusion. It's, it's very real. And like, I can see you sitting there and I can see you sitting in your, in your difficult day, like mine, you know, that was amazing. How long was that program? That was an eight week um, program and we met for like several hours every Tuesday morning or something, but, uh, a licensed clinical social worker and a licensed medical social worker who work at the actors fund led this, this group every week. And we learned like actual cognitive behavioral therapy techniques for dealing with anxiety and depression. And some of the tools I took away from that class were like, uh, it was, it was amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, lots of things. Good for you too, for just finding resources. The yeah. Actors Fund listeners, please look it up if you look it up. Already. Go they to the Actors Fund. They have amazing clinics. They have amazing things that they do. They can help you with health insurance. I mean, it's, yes. the Actors Fund is, is an incredible, it's just a wealth of resources. Yeah. I started, your question was, <laughs> <laughs> a long Where time ago, you asked, asked me you what was it like to perform after I was no longer self-medicating yeah. with alcohol. And it's interesting you asked that because, you know, like I said, this has just been a several years long process of, of figuring out how I function uh, healthily or try to function healthily. Mm-hmm. And about a year ago, I got up on stage for the first time after sobriety and after up on stage in a real way, like right. in something that wasn't a reading or, you know, an audition. Um, I, I was in a, like a 10 minute musical as part of shots, shots, the mm-hmm. shots program, the Amios theater company does where they generate new short plays every month. Um, and I was asked to do a musical shots and it was a new short 10 minute musical about a kid from Iowa who rolls up into New York city for the first time and meets artists like him for the first time. And, Lovely. um, it was just this sort of like special little piece that fit me like a glove and I I did it and without realizing that this was what was happening I got up on stage and and was playing this character and allowing myself to be seen on stage by an audience completely sober and it was the first time uh, that I'd experienced that in memory, you know, everything I'd worked on in, in grad school, everything I'd done in New York since moving here. I mean, it, it, I've been living my life under the influence of alcohol. And so being on stage and working on that project, I mean, I wasn't expecting it, but I had like 
and anxiety episode on stage. <laughs> and I worked through it because friends in the audience said that they were none the wiser. And I, that was kind of astounding to me. But Isn't that I, crazy? Oh, yeah. It's wild. What can be going on inside yes. ourselves? Your nervous system. Your central nervous system is <laughs> like insane. on red alert. And, and you can manage to... Yeah. Well, that's training. I feel like that's... Maybe. I, I, yeah. I just... I was like, I have to stay present. I just am here. I'm just here. I'm telling the story. I'm singing this song. I'm doing a scene with this person. You know, I just, I, yeah. I stayed there. Um, but all that to say that that happened. And shortly after that, I booked, um, I booked a project that took me to Japan to right. tour Japan singing with a symphony orchestra for four months. That was right after that. And those experiences back to back, were such profound things for me because I experienced um, just being on stage and doing my work on stage and allowing myself to be witnessed without having medicated myself, you know. And that was a gift, especially the Japan tour. I mean, just because that experience in and of itself was so incredible from top to bottom. And I still look back on it. Like, I can't believe I got that job. I can't believe that I did it. I can't believe I returned. Well, and just to be taken so completely out of your normal yes. life. Yes. It was a gift. I mean, it That's was a incredible. gift, but that short musical specifically crazy came back in a full length version that I just did. What? And, um, it's called Metropolitan and it's the by one that you've just been doing, just the, been doing at, at that festival and mm -hmm, the fresh fruit festival. We just closed on Sunday. How special. Um, yeah. They wrote like a full length Tom Picasso and Mikey Rosenbaum. The, the writers wrote a full length musical from that 10 minute piece we did together. And they did a reading of it while I was in Japan that I couldn't be a part of. And when I got back, they were like, Hey, we're thinking about getting this produced yeah. at the fresh fruit festival this summer. Do you want to come do it? And it was this wild like full circle moment that I'm still sort of living in like right now because I just closed this sh festival show on Sunday um and I was thinking about it the other day I was like when I was doing this short piece a year ago like that was the first time that I was on stage sober and like that was a really special thing for me and to get to you know come back and do this full-length production of what that piece had become at this point in my life, playing these queer characters, um, who I, both of whom I was playing two characters and I just was in love with both of them. It was like such a special and like full circle, <laughs> really sort of magical experience all around. Um, oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. That's incredible. What a bookend. Do you have any other artistic outlets that you're able to tap into when maybe you're not working as an actor or things are scarce. Obviously you're a singer. I'm a singer. I, that's a frustrating question. <laughs> <laughs> or like hobbies or like things, yeah. things that keep you creative in some way. No. Yeah. I'm frustrated by that question because it's, I, I do feel capable of a lot of different artistic things and I don't always hold myself to doing them all the time in the, in the musical that I just did, my character wore this, this, there's a 
sequence where my character's wearing this ghostly sort of caftan and I came at is it thundering it's now? It's thundering. <laughs> where did that come from? It got very dark and oh rainy. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. Listeners. Well, the dog has stopped barking, so. <laughs> um, it's a very uh, moody podcast. It is moody. Today. I wish, I hope they can hear the thunder. Mm. What was I talking about? My caftan. I made a caftan. I <laughs> sewed this beautiful caftan for, as a costume and everybody was like, where did you get that dress? And I was like, I made it. And do you have a sewing machine? I do. And my like friends, people I'm very close to didn't even know that that was a skill that I had. And I'm like, that's disappointing. <laughs> it's disappointing <laughs> that you don't know that that's because I don't do it enough. Right. Um, I love taking photos. I, I think I have a, a, a strong visual eye, but I don't own a nice camera. And so I don't ever do anything beyond, you know, right. taking a snapshot on my iPhone and posting it on Instagram. Um, I, I do, and I think where I'm at right now in my life is um, I'm in a phase of, of figuring out that I have to prioritize utilizing as many of my creative abilities as I possibly can on a day-to-day basis because I don't do that right now. I mean, I support myself right now in a nanny job. I'm nannying for a family in Manhattan, and it's great, and I'm lucky to have the gig and, and just in terms of, of pay and benefits and things. Like, it's really solid for me right now, but I actually sort of made a deal with myself the other day. I was like, I want this to be the last job like this that I have. Mm. Um, I want to... I want to spend the next year figuring out how to make money as a photographer, how to make money, uh, stitching garments, making drag, how to make money editing video and, and making online content. I mean, there's so many things I want to do. Yeah. And I, I've dipped my toes into all of those things, but I haven't stuck with one or any combination of them for long enough to figure out how to make them, you know, you have to prioritize what, how you spend your day-to-day time just to, to live in the city and make money, you know? Um, and I've, I've kind of reached, I think I've sort of maxed out, <laughs> uh, the energy I have to give to, um, money-making endeavors that are not feeding me creatively. Um, so yeah, I want to, I'm, I'm prioritizing that. This is me. This is me, dear listeners, t- telling you that I'm, this is my goal for the next 12 if months. If you want me to email you this episode I do. once a month for the next I year. do. If you could just, if you could just actually just, just print me a transcript, actually, I'm going to frame it in like a gold frame on my wall and look at it every day. Highlight. Just it. every once in a while, I'll text you a voice memo of your own, vo- of your own voice <laughs> saying your goal. Just yes. to see if it helps. Yes, please. It'll be like deleting my number. Yeah. Well, we'll see where I am come July, 2020. Let's we'll, we'll see. (laughs) Um, well, when we were first emailing about setting up this interview, it was right in the middle of pride Mm. and you were very busy. Mm. You had a lot of events going Mm -hmm. on. And the one I was hoping to like, just touch on for a moment in particular was this one at the New York public library that our friend Vichet and his brother were involved with too. I know. Can you tell me a little bit about that? That yeah, seems so amazing. It was amazing. It was so special. Um, I really wish I could have gone, but baby things kept oh, me, kept 
kept Listen, me away. It was the first time I had ever gone to this event. Um, Has it gone on before? Well, so the library after hours event is something that happens with some regularity. I think every, like one Friday, every other month or so the library has the New York Public Library at their main branch um, by, Bryant on, by Bryant Park there on 5th Avenue and 42nd Street. They do this big sort of event where they'll the library closes down for the night at 6 o'clock and at 7 they'll reopen the doors and they'll have all kinds of programming centered around a theme, something topical at that time of year. Um, and it's basically a party. There's There's any number of, you know, literary, um, events that might be happening, but then they've got a DJ and a dance floor and Mm -hmm. all of this stuff going on. So that event happens every now and then. I believe that this was the first time that they had done one, at least of this scope, um, in conjunction with pride. And it was because the library had done this incredible exhibition called love and resistance stonewall 50, Mm. um, which was, um, just a big, beautiful exhibition of uh, all kinds of queer history, but specifically centering around the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riot. So the library had done all of this work to set up this exhibition, and they had released a book. Jason Bauman had had edited this they called it the Stonewall Reader, and Penguin published it. Um, this this anthology of all kinds of literature, um, a lot of which was from pre Stonewall era, and then during, and then after. And they'd prioritized, you know, they'd prioritized highlighting voices of queers of color and trans people, and. Um, you know, really doing a lot. The library was doing a lot of work with this exhibition and this book to, awesome. to sort of illuminate the narrative around the Stonewall, the Stonewall riots, and and what we sort of um, have experienced as the mainstream narrative of mm. what happened um, as part of that historical event. Anyway, they had this after-hours event that was so amazing. They had a drag queen story hour. They, they, like I said, there was a DJ, there was a party. You could go tour the exhibition. And then we, the part that Vichette's brother, Saria programmed was in the periodicals room, which is like the most gorgeous room I've ever been in. This big, beautiful, if you've never been there, go there. The periodicals room at the New York public library, this big, like wooden sculpted, gorgeous <laughs> that room. That building is like... Oh, it's incredible. I mean, it's like Hogwarts. Yeah. But like, it's I would never mysterious. have... Yeah. And like, I would never have thought to walk into the periodicals room. Like, what yeah. is, what's a periodical I'm going to look at? I don't know. So we were <laughs> in there and there were, there was a group of about eight or so performers and we were asked to read these bits of uh, queer literature and ephemera, they called it, like some really obscure stuff, um, unpublished works. Uh, Lorraine Hansberry's Notes to Self. Hmm. Uh, I read Truman Capote's letters to his friend Andrew Linden. Um, there was a, there was this beautiful conversation between James Baldwin and um, Lorraine Hansberry that Donye Love and 
done in a Lavinia Gray's red that was just like had the room just explode. I mean, it was so exciting because people were sitting, people came, you know, and people were, it was like an hour and a half long. They and came in and out. Yeah. The whole idea is you come and you sit for a while and you hear a few pieces and then you go out to the bar and then you go up to the exhibition. I mean, it was very like casual sort of moving, moving parts, but our program was about an hour and a half long. And it was so cool. The feedback was people were like, we can't believe we got to sit in a room and hear some of this stuff, you know, things that, that, were maybe never before read, you know, yeah. that the library had sort of dug up out of their archives of unpublished work. It was just really, really cool. And a friend of mine who came to see it was said, you know, I, I was sort of struck as I was sitting here listening that I had never experienced such an evening of deliberate historical queer storytelling. And it occurred to me that I had yeah. not Experience Which is like not that included in the mainstream history. Yeah. No, no. I, did they make an audio recording of your performance? I Do don't you know. know. That's a good question. I know that there was a photographer there, but I'm not sure if they filmed it. I don't know. I'm just curious. I would, if, if that exists, I would love to have my hands on it. Yeah. If the library is listening. That sounds amazing. I really wish I could have been there. It was very cool. It was very special, and I frankly can't. I was, it was amazing to be asked to be in that room. Yeah. I'm so grateful to Vichat and his brother Surya for that experience. Mm-hmm. My dear, one of my dearest friends in the world, one of my friends who I mentioned was my friend on the first day of Evansville. Mm-hmm. Lee Leberton was also one of the readers and we were just like completely just, we were just so delighted to have that experience together. <laughs> it was really fun. Are, are there any lessons that you've learned in the last couple of years that you're really proud of that you want to tell me about? Large or small? Oh, what a big question. I think something that I'm focusing on recently is I'm learning more and more every, like literally with every passing day, the importance of pursuing my personal truth. And that means different things to me on different days, at different times of day. But um, like I said earlier, it has as much to do with my mental health journey as it has to do with my journey as a performer, as it has to do with my journey as a queer person. Just tuning in to the little signs that I that if that if I'm listening, I see and hear every day that are pointing me in the direction I need to be moving in. Um, moving through my mental health journey in the last couple of years has been, I mean, it's that's been a daily practice of committing to following my truth and acknowledging realities about myself, about my my day-to-day existence about my family about my past you know things that you that I just have to grapple with that I have to um confront and it's hard it's always hard but it's always worth it when you get to the other side of whatever little confrontation you might be having with yourself you know you move through it and realize oh thank goodness I thank goodness I did that you know following my truth as a queer person, staying committed to 
and this is, this is hard. You want to talk about the industry and how difficult the industry can make it to, to just exist. I mean, staying committed to like my, um, my constantly evolving sense of my gender expression mm. when I have to walk into a professional room, what does it mean when my agents want a headshot where my hair is not curly because they need to be able to submit me for more straight laced commercial projects. You know, what does it mean when an employer, what does it mean for my life when an employer withholds a shift from me at work for wearing nail polish? Listening to myself in those instances, quitting that job. Quitting that job immediately when they withheld a shift for me for wearing nail polish was like a really difficult thing to do and also the easiest thing I've ever done. And I'm so grateful that I made that decision. But I had to really tune in and listen like, is it worth it? No, when you're looking at your bank account and rent. Yeah. It would be very easy to just be like, I'm just going to be quiet. Yeah. Barrel through. Yeah. Barrel through (laughs) the thunder and all. I'm hoping this lets up. I know I've got to like I've got to get home. <laughs> to get to the train eventually. <laughs> Maybe a good excuse to get an Uber. Oh my god. I I think that that's my overarching answer yeah. to your question. No, and it's an ongoing thing. Yeah. That's yeah. It takes a lot of courage. Is there anything personal or artistic that I haven't asked you about that you were really looking forward to talking about? Since I obviously don't know all the ins and outs of <laughs> your creative life. No, I you know. <laughs> I'm working on right now, I hinted at this earlier in terms of just like, you know, trying to um, explore and utilize all of my creative abilities Mm -hmm. and desires in my day-to-day life. I've, up to this point, identified pretty much always as an actor and a singer. Mm -hmm. And that's what my training is in. So I think that that is just a natural sort of path for me to fall into. But I'm starting to realize that I have to be making my own work. Yeah. And I have impulses as a writer specifically that I'm, you know, itches I'm trying to scratch and I'm not a practiced, I think I'm a strong writer when I have to write something, but I have not built a ritual of writing into my life. And so yeah. I'm, I'm looking for, I'm trying to attract people into my life who can help me structure learn some structure around writing. Um, I also love directing. I'm working on directing a project right now on camera for the first time ever. And that has been this extraordinary learning process that I'm so grateful have for. Have you already and started shooting? We are actually, we've wrapped um, okay, and we're great. in post right now. And I actually got to sit with the producer and the editor today um, going through footage of one of the episodes of this web series I directed. It's called Characteristically. Um, and it's going to be so funny and so good. And I'm so <laughs> proud of it already. And it's not even well, done yet. Let but me know when it uh, debuts. I absolutely I'll will. Know. Yeah. But I just, you know, I'm putting out into the universe. Universe, if you're listening to this podcast, and I know you <laughs> I are. Really, really hope it is. <laughs> I think the universe I could is listening. Use that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just, um, if you've heard the things that I have to say and you think, oh, I want to make a film with Dylan, I want yeah. to. Make a musical with Dylan. Come find me because I'm looking for you. <laughs> I'm. I have lots and lots of of That's hats I'm trying to wear right place now. To be. It is. It is. Yeah. I'm. I have a lot to be grateful for. 
if you are kind of in that dark place and feeling uninspired, are there any tangible things that you tangible things that you go back to again and again like tangible things i can touch books you reread or Mm. music you go to oh my goodness absolutely a place uh songs that i listen to that are like um that are like church for me yes i put i'll put i'm not going to name the songs because that feels kind of pointless but i have songs that are are essentially meditations for me that i'll put on that um sonically or otherwise will just take me to a place of calm or inspiration or, um, meditation. I do that pretty often. Um, and there is a book, I should have mentioned this book earlier in this conversation because this book was really a big part of my, uh, the journey I've been talking about over the last couple of years. It's a book called Radical Acceptance by Dr. Tara Brock. She's a yogi and, uh, um, yeah, she's, she's pretty, um, well known just in the like spiritual self-help book section. Yeah. I feel like they, they talk about her a lot in like the, the women's recovery podcast. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think her mom ran Alcoholics Anonymous for many years. I mean, she comes from this family of, uh, self-help people uh but she wrote this she also that she, is a tv pilot waiting to be written right there self-help people <laughs> it's mine universe come make this show with me it's it's just me and leah self-help people that. <laughs> uh, that's a great idea you're right you're so right no but she's she also she spent most of her adult life dr tara brock in um ashrams and spiritual communities mm. and she's just got a lot to say about um, how we treat ourselves. And this book, Radical Acceptance, is about, it's basically this twofold um, way of experiencing life that she describes, where on, on the one hand, it's a radical acceptance is a matter of um, experiencing the truth or the reality of your circumstances as it really is, experiencing... Um, not getting caught up in a narrative about what something should be or ought to be or might be, but like what, what is actually happening right now? What is it? So seeing that, seeing what the reality, what the truth of the moment of the circumstance is. And then the other, um, wing of radical acceptance is holding that truth with compassion and with love. And so really radical acceptance is this process of, experiencing your life and experiencing what's really happening and just being fully present for it and being fully compassionate toward whatever it is that you're experiencing. If you're experiencing joy, experience that joy with your fullest sense of compassion. If you're experiencing pain, if you're experiencing heartbreak, if you're experiencing rage, acknowledge that that is your experience. So try, you know, we, we make ourselves crazy trying to deny our anger, trying to deny our jealousy, trying to, de- to deny our frustration. If you can just acknowledge I'm frustrated right now, I'm angry right now. I'm in physical pain right now. And just hold that experience with compassion. You can start to live your life free of the effort you're making to, um, to 
deny reality. <laughs> and she just makes this really, really strong case for um, just tuning in, tuning in to what's really happening and being compassionate with yourself. That book, reading that book at the time that I read it a couple of years ago, um, it was a game changer for me. And I recommend it to everybody that I have conversations about well-being with um, because it's just, it's so, so good. I'm going to request it. Yes. Oh, absolutely. It's so good. Back to our theme of the library. <laughs> um, and then the final question is, is there any piece of art that you want to recommend that you've seen recently of any, any art form? Oh gosh. Things that I've seen recently. Friends is, shows. Or... Is anything that I've seen recently still running? I've seen a lot of things recently that I've really loved, but I don't know that anything actually is still running. I saw this amazing show at BAM a couple of weeks ago called Triptych, Eyes of One on Another. It was this multimedia uh, symphonic choral piece um, by like a multitude of authors and featured all of this photography of Robert Maplethorpe and it was just this astounding oh my God. multimedia piece of art. It was so breathtaking. I wish I had seen that. I know. I wish <laughs> it's, it was like three performances only. I don't oh know if God. it will come back. Did you see Octet at Signature? No, I missed Octet and I'm so mad about it. Did they just close too? I feel like they might it have. It did. It did just close. I'm seeing... That was incredible. Was it? I mean, that across the board and people are just... Just Dave Malloy. Yeah. Eight part harmony for... Yeah. Hour and a half. I went to the not EPA nobody. for I went to the EPA for Octet and I was was not cast so um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if some deep part of me was like I'm not going to see that no that's that would never well, hopefully be. Um, I, I saw that they were trying to like crowdfund for a album so maybe they'll make an album. Oh for real? Yeah. Oh I would love that. I would love to. I'm going on Saturday to see A Strange Loop oh, at Playwrights Horizons. I've heard it's really good. And people are really. And that's a musical. Correct? That is a musical. Yeah. Yeah. People are raving about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's evidently one of those game changer pieces of musical theater. And I'm like, I got to be there for those, those, those <laughs> up your alley. Yeah. I like, I like the musicals that kind of defy mm-hmm. everything you think you're going to get when you walk in. Um, yeah, I wish I had a better, I wish there was a show that was like currently running that I have oh, seen great. recently. I saw underground railroad game at Ars Nova was incredible, but that's over now too. Um, a movie. Go see. Oh, go see the last black man in San Francisco. I've heard that's amazing. Oh. And I have an acquaintance who worked on it as a producer, and I'm just very excited that they're getting such a response. But I need to. Where did you see it in the city? Is it playing? I like, the went. Or something? I went by myself and saw it at the Alamo Draft House. Okay. And I had some brisket tacos, and sat by myself in the movie theater and watched it. And it was it was the best like self date I've been on in okay. a long time. It's a really it. really good. Really I love good. going to the movies and I rarely get to. I know. Well, it's expensive. It is expensive. I haven't done like, I know friends do the movie pass thing where you can, you know, go see X number of movies we for months. We used to, but it kind of was going downhill and they were mm. blocking which movies they were offering. But so I stopped mine. Frankie still has his, which mm. we kind of end up both getting to use since yeah. only one of us can go at a time anyway <laughs> with the baby. <laughs> That's not a bad system. So we kind of share it sometimes, yeah. but I need to try to go more often. Dylan, thank you for doing this. Thank this you for having me. Such a joy. This was really, it feels so special. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Yay. 
Thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of the Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the Compass Podcast. Pledges start at as little as $1 a month. You'll get access to bonus content and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please rate or review in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brandon Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.